0: May the Holy Spirit speak to us now as we open the word that he inspired and uh, address three subjects that he placed into his holy word and that by Jesus' command he placed into the church. Today I want to talk with you about baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership and uh, you say, well, why are we talking about those now? We're talking about them because in two weeks we have a really great opportunity for our church to celebrate and for many people to obey the Lord's command. And I, as a pastor, want to encourage people to obey the Lord's command and to explain why, okay? So whenever we talk about these, uh, these uh, subjects look at church history, there's there's been a tendency with them to either make them more important than they ought to be, or to make them less important than they ought to be. And what we want to do here is we want to make sure that we land them, place them right biblically where they're supposed to be. And uh, these all have things in common that I'm going to make clear as we go here. Um, And so, to illustrate why I think this is important, I want to give you a, this is somewhat of an extreme example of not making the right things the important things, and it's a little bit silly, but it is a true story. I am telling it accurately. I am not embellishing, because pastors never embellish, Uh, but I am telling you this is exactly what happened, and this was many, many years ago. Let me emphasize that, many, many years ago. Uh, we were at, we had a prayer meeting here during the week, like a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and this woman came into the prayer meeting, and like one look at her, you could tell life had been hard, okay? You kind of know that look, the face, everything, life had been hard. Uh, We got talking with her, and she related her story, and it was a very, very sad story, and she had, was in town for just a short amount of time, and rolled into our church somehow, and so we prayed for her, showed care, concerned for her. She went out the door after that prayer meeting. Well, the next Sunday, I'm standing in the uh, foyer of the church, and who walks in but that same woman? I'm like, oh, hey, nice to see you, and she, oh, it's nice to be here, and thanks for Wednesday night, and she reached into the inside of her coat pocket, and she pulled out a little dog. It's the honest truth. It was the smallest dog I'd ever seen in my entire life. It was like this big. It looked like a gerbil. And she said, she said, this is my therapy dog. And I have a doctor's like prescription for this therapy dog. It's part of my therapy. And it's just in there, you know, a little dog. And I'm like, oh, well, that's, I've never seen one that small before. And uh, she puts it back into her pocket. and goes into the service. Okay. Well, the next week, a few days later, um, there was a couple in the church that wanted to talk to me. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk. And so we sit down in my office, and they said, Pastor, did you know that on Sunday there was somebody with a dog in church? I said, oh, yeah, actually, I, I... I I kind of did know about that dog in church. And they said, Pastor, we can't have dogs in church. I was like, oh, that's it. And she says, pretty soon we'll have chickens and cows and (laughs) pigs roaming the aisles of the church. Do you want that, Pastor? Her husband reaches into his pocket and pulls out a picture of a Great Dane. And shoves it in my face and he says do you want to have one of these walking around the church I said way 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 slow down here I said let me just let me tell you a little bit about this and I said last Wednesday we had this prayer meeting and this woman came walking in uh, new in town only around town for a little while and she you know hard hard life terrible things that have happened to her and so she came Sunday and she just shared with she said it's like her therapy dog or something I never heard of such a thing but it's her therapy dog, and and uh, and I'm looking at them, and I just see them going. <laughs> and I said, so I kind of pushed it. I said, and, and further, you know, if you look at the life of Jesus, he oftentimes had troubled women that came across his path and every single time not judgment he gave them grace and ministered to them and it just seems to me that if jesus gave grace to the women like that came into his path that we ought to show grace to this woman that god brought into our church and i looked at them and they looked at me and they said but we can't have dogs in church and they told me they were leaving the church over it. Right? Right over their head. All my sort of Jesus talk, right over their head. Now I look at that story, and it's, that is a true story. Some of you are going, "That he got that out of a book somewhere. That is an actual true story. And to me, is a kind of extreme example of what I'm going to be getting at here today on these three subjects, that it is so easy for us to take something that maybe it has a little uh, importance, decorum in the church, okay, we'll grant a little importance to that, but to elevate it above really important things like ministering to people and their needs and loving the you know the down and uh, downtrodden is a missing it like the Pharisees who they they strained the gnat and they swallowed the camel as Jesus said always that danger and when it comes to things that are prominent in the church like baptism or communion so easy for us to get it wrong and to make something else more important or to make that thing more important than it should be. And again, I want us to make sure that here we understand what they are, what God's purpose, Jesus' purpose was for them and to have them right where the Bible calls us to have them. Okay, so I'm going to walk through these three. This is not really an expositional message so much as talking about biblically what is baptism and why do we have baptism, what is the Lord's Supper, and then finally... What should be our relationship with a local church? So let's begin with baptism here. And uh, when we talk about baptism, what is baptism all about? I'm going to spend most of my time on this. And let's begin by looking at a few of the key texts. There's many texts in the New Testament about this. Perhaps most prominently, Matthew 28, verse 19 Jesus said this, these are the last words as recorded by Matthew that Jesus said in his earthly ministry, he said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.'" Here is Peter, Acts 2, in the very first sermon uh, that, that was preached in the church. He said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A little bit later, Acts eight thirty eight, And he commanded the chariot, this is now uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he commanded the chariot and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Here's Acts 10, 48, and Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And here's the Apostle Paul relating his own story, Acts 22, verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There are many passages, this is more of a sampling here, but especially noteworthy is Matthew 28. To read that again, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here we have the last words as recorded by Matthew that Jesus offered. This could be an interesting sermon, couldn't it? Some of you might think, oh, they're now going to practice sprinkling. That was thunder, wasn't it, that I heard? So that was a joke, then. that was like a theology joke, did you get that? I'm talking on baptism and it's raining, sprinkling, wow. I am very unappreciated in this church. Okay, so, known as the Great Commission, the key phrase in that is make disciples. What is the core mission of the church and of our church, church, it is to make disciples. That involves sharing the gospel with uh, a sinner who receives Jesus as their Savior. They believe in Jesus. They become a Christian. And then it's not just that. We are to teach them to obey everything he commanded. And there you have then the growth in the Christian life. We're called to make disciples. We're called to mature them as disciples with the goal that they someday, someday would multiply themselves as disciples. Okay, So that's, that's the church. That's our calling. That's what we're to be doing. And right in the midst of that command is baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit i'm going to think that if this is the big final command of jesus every word in here is important and that it's not in there by accident it's not sort of a throwaway but that baptizing by jesus command is part of what he wants us to be doing when people become a christian Now why, Jesus? Why is this? Let's be clear. It is not to save them, okay? The saving work is done by Jesus. It's not done by baptism. It's not done by going underwater. It's not who baptizes you. It is who died for your sins that matters. And what you believe about Jesus, his atoning work on the cross, by faith received now, those saving benefits come to the sinner by faith. This is God's miracle, God's grace. This is salvation offered to anybody who believes. It's wonderful, isn't it? Amen. Okay, so that is the gospel. That's what saves us. It is not baptism that saves us. The big thing that baptism is about is identifying with Jesus. Identifying with Jesus. I identify with him in the picture of baptism as I am as I, when he died, I died, that picture of going under the water. When he was raised back to life, I was raised back to life. Baptism connects as an illustration of the gospel, but primarily it is about me identifying myself with him, publicly identifying myself as a follower of Jesus, So in this way, baptism then is a kind of, it's like an initiation rite. It's like a first step of obedience. You know, my family, we raised horses growing up, and we would occasionally every year maybe have one foal that was born, and and to watch that foal take very first steps, right? It's born, and almost right away it starts to try to walk and the the shaky right shaky steps baptism is is like that it's it's for the new believer who just now has come to receive jesus taking that sort of shaky first step of obedience the first of many in their life as they walk in obedience to jesus as the lord of their life the word baptism it literally means to dip or to go under something And from the beginning in the church, that something has been water. The church, we don't baptize in Kool-Aid. We don't, you know, it's water. We see that the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, see, here's a body of water. What keeps me from being baptized? So the church has always practiced baptism with water. We practice baptism with water. This is the way that we do it. And that baptism, okay, faith baptizes the heart. Baptism baptizes the rest of us and identifies us as a follower of Jesus. We say it this way around here. It's an outward sign of an inward change. Okay? It is not the change. It is a sign of the change that God is working in the heart of the sinner, that regeneration, that new birth and new life. Baptism. So, really cool, baptism. But can you make baptism too important? Hey, remember, I'm kind of wanting to make sure we have it where we, it needs to be. Absolutely, you can make baptism too important, and many, many people do. Here's one way. By saying, baptism saves me. How do you know you're saved? I was baptized. Going under the water, that's when I became a Christian. That's the thing that washed my sins away. This is known as baptismal regeneration. There are denominations of the church that practice this. There are denominations in our community that practice this in fact i remember asking one of the pastors of in one of these churches that they 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 believe to be clear they believe that yes you can believe but you're not actually saved until you're baptized i said okay so let's just say that you believed and you're about to be baptized you're literally like steps away from going into the baptismal and you die of a heart attack do you go to heaven i asked him that he goes that's what everybody always asks that same question i said well, what's the answer And he goes, well, we probably would say yes to that. You probably would go to heaven. I say, absolutely you're going to heaven. Why? Because you're not saved when you get baptized. If you're saved when you get baptized, it means that salvation is not by faith alone. It's by faith plus baptism that you are saved. And yet, the emphasis of the Bible is not that uh, we're saved by any good work that we do, even baptism, we are saved completely by what Christ did for us on the cross. So we, we can't make baptism too important and to make it, okay, the people that came to our church from that denomination, thank you. Uh, we can't make it too important or you get a kind of messed up gospel out of doing that. Don't want to do that. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. Here's another way you can make it too important is to say baptism, it's all about the water. It's all about the water. Now this is a little tricky, okay? Because whenever you talk about mode of baptism, method of baptism. If you know anything about sort of denominations and church practice, when it comes to baptism, there are people that practice baptism. And you you name it, and there's some people out there doing it, right? How much water, how little water. I joked about the sprinkling earlier, the pouring, three times forward, three times backwards, all kinds of different ways that baptism is practiced. And this, I think, creates confusion uh, and make some people take a stand on baptism and the way that we do it exactly i think this is a dangerous thing why do i say that because unless you're prepared to say that this is a deal breaker for god like who does he allow in heaven is it only the people that practice baptism exactly the way that we do well if i say that now i'm sort of back to the first point where baptism and the way you're baptized or how much water was used is what actually contributes to your salvation. But yet salvation's by faith alone, isn't it? Okay. So I would propose that the best way to look at this is to draw the circle exactly where God draws the circle of heaven. Okay. Somebody that's trusting in their baptism, they're not gonna go to heaven because they're not believing in a true gospel. But there are a lot of people that believe salvation's by faith alone and practice some other sort of approach to baptism. And this is why when you talk with people... They may say baptism, but they may use the word in a different way. you got to say, okay, what do you mean by that? But we, what we want to do here is we want to emphasize that it's all about him. It's not all about baptism. It is all about him. And baptism is very important, but it's not the gospel itself. So there are going to be brothers and sisters that come along your path that have some different baptism story than you do. And if they believe in Jesus as their Savior, they're not trusting in their baptism, they're trusting wholly in the work of Jesus, even if it's a little different, that's probably a brother in Christ. That's probably somebody that you're going to spend eternity with in heaven. You're not going to have the experience in heaven where someday you're going to say, hey, tell me, how were you baptized, right? And uh, think of all the ways people in heaven are going to have been baptized. Well, I was poured over. I was dipped three times backwards. I was this, that, or the other. You're not going to look at them and go, how did you get in here? (laughs) They let people like you in here? It's not going to happen. Why? Because salvation is by faith in Christ alone. So be careful that you don't make that stuff more important than it should be. Now, the other side of this is also true. You can make baptism not as important as it ought to be. And here's a few examples of how to do this. There are people that say this, I don't need to be baptized. Yes, I trust in Jesus, but me personally, this is just me. They'll say that, just me. I don't need to be baptized. And we respond to that lovingly, but with conviction. Jesus commanded that you be baptized. And we can either trust your opinion on this matter or we can trust Jesus' opinion on the matter. But there is no doubt that Jesus commanded that we are to be baptized. If Christ is the Lord of your life, then you are to be in obedience to him. And I think that is really one of the issues with people that go, "Ah, I don't need to be baptized. They have a sort of laissez-faire attitude towards it. Is Christ really the Lord of your life? Because if he is, what he says matters. Not how I feel about it. But what he says, and obedience is, we say it to our three-year-old daughter, right away, all the way. Obey, right away, all the way. And baptism is a matter of obedience. Now I can hear the people right now, they're saying, whoa, wait, wait a second. What about the thief on the cross? And you know the story of the thief on the cross converts to, to Jesus while he's hanging there about to die. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, I'll grant you the point. Apparently, in the church, if you are being crucified, (laughs) when you come to faith in Jesus, you get a pass on the need to be baptized. And I'm prepared to make that policy here at Bethel Church. (laughs) Other than that, you need to be baptized. Jesus commanded it. Then there's people out there, they say this, I'm waiting until the time is right. I'm just waiting until the time is right. You know when the right time to obey is? Now. Now. Jesus commanded that we be baptized. The apostle Peter commanded that we be baptized. The apostle Paul modeled being baptized himself When he came to faith, even with his incredible privilege of seeing Jesus at the right hand of God, still baptism was not beneath him. He was baptized. And frankly, to me, baptism is awesome. Like, I feel like every Christian should wish every time there's a baptism that they get to be baptized again. Don't you think? I mean, I feel that way about like weddings now. When I go to a wedding now and I see the couple getting married, it reminds me of my wedding day, which was like the greatest day of my life. If I had a time machine that I could go back in time, I would go back to August twenty fifth, two 2012. I would relive that. I would get married over and over and over again. Did I say it enough, honey? Okay. I would, though, because I loved, I loved that day so much i got to identify this is my wife and now i'm married and you know isn't it great and it seems to me that as christians even though like marriage you don't have to get remarried but as christians every time there's a baptism there ought to be this sense in our heart man i wish i could do that again i wish i could stand in front of people and say i love jesus and i i'm a follower of his i wish i could do that over and over and over again So in two weeks, we have a special opportunity here to publicly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. And for those of us who've been baptized, we all wish we could get baptized again. But for you who have not been baptized, I'm appealing to your heart here, but I also am speaking with the authority of Jesus himself and saying, you need to be baptized. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you need to obey Jesus his command and to be baptized no matter what your feeling is or your whatever you need to be baptized and we would love to see that happen and frankly it's an awesome baptism it's one of my favorites it's in lake michigan the sun is setting the church is gathered it's a wonderful time what a great time and place to be baptized and i wish i could baptize myself there i really do and frankly to be baptized pleases jesus and what more could any Christian want than that, right? Baptism. All right. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper, okay? The Lord's Supper. And these, these are easily linked together because historically the church has acknowledged two ordinances or sacraments of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And I think it's important with this that we understand where this fits into the uh, important scale like baptism jesus instituted the lord's supper he did so in the upper room this is the night before he gave his life on the cross like the great commission i say anything jesus says right before he dies all of it's important amen okay all of it's important he doesn't waste any words the holy spirit inspired it to be in the bible so when we come across teachings about the Lord's Supper, also called communion, we need to take these things seriously, and there are many, many verses that talk about this. And like baptism, there are lots of different views out there about the Lord's Supper, some of which are making it more important or less important. You know, uh, for example, the, the Catholic view on the Lord's Supper is that those elements become the actual body and blood of Jesus as I partake it. The Lutheran view is that Jesus' presence is in and among and through the elements as I partake it. Our view on this is that Jesus is there in the elements symbolically as the bread and the cup speak to my soul in a powerful way and remind me of the gospel and who Jesus was, that, his, that Jesus nourishes the church by reminding the souls of his glory and the glory of his cross. Here's probably the, one of the clearest teachings on this, 1 Corinthians 11. You've probably heard this at communion services. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, by the way, to Corinth, which was seriously messing up the Lord's Supper. He says this, here's how to do it. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, time doesn't allow much exposition here, but I do want to help you see here that the repeated emphasis in this passage is, do this in remembrance of me. You might have grown up in a church where the communion table had that engraved on the front of the table, in remembrance of me, and rightly so, because the heart of what the Lord's Supper is about is, is the church remembering Jesus. Now, why would Why would Jesus institute this? And the reason is is that he knows human nature. It It is in our nature to have something that at one time is really super special to us, but over time we all have spiritual amnesia. We begin to forget about what was so valuable and important, the faith commitments that I made at one time in my life. And to fight against that amnesia, Jesus instituted in the church an ongoing and regular reminder to the church of what the whole thing is all about in the first place. So how do we keep from forgetting Jesus or letting our love for him fade? And in the Lord's Supper, what we do is we reenact Okay, We reenact. Somewhere in this service, there's a guy in our church. There he is right there. He's a reenactor. You know what that means? He dresses up in Civil War attire and plays like he's a soldier. Don't you? He does. I, I did it with you once, actually. It was World War II, so it was cooler. but uh, <laughs> And very sort of masculine, uh, frankly, to do that. But uh, Reenacting. Okay, reenacting. Couples do this as well, don't they? They get married every anniversary. They remind themselves of what they committed when that, that day that they got married, and they go out and they celebrate. Nations do that. Independence Day, one week ago, we had 4th of July. Balloons and all the rest. The nation reminding itself of what it did when it first started so many years ago. We celebrate the birthdays of Children right? Oh, this is when it all started. This is the first day of your life, and now we're going to have cake and punch and celebrate. We just do that. We remind ourselves of what happened when it first started. We remind our hearts of what was important back then. And when we take communion, what we are doing is we are not celebrating a nation or a marriage or the child, the birth of a child. We are celebrating what Jesus did when he saved our souls from eternal damnation. And I say that's worth celebrating, don't you? To really grasp what Christ did for us is worth every celebration. And the Lord's Supper takes us back again and again and again to the core of what this is about. To take the bread is to reenact that Jesus bore our guilt in his body on the cross. To take that cup is to reenact that it was not the blood of bulls and goats that accomplished our redemption, but the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that was shed for this new covenant and relationship made available through his blood. It reminds me of that over and over and over again. And then we eat it and we drink it. Okay, this is like believing. It's very personal. Okay, nobody can eat for you. You don't say to some guy, hey, when you're out, would you have lunch for me? What do you mean? No, I have to eat for myself. I have to drink for myself. Nobody can eat or drink for me. And similarly, faith. Nobody can believe for you. And that's why your grandpa might have been a preacher and your daddy was a deacon and all the rest, but it doesn't really matter. Why? Because only you can believe, friend. It is personal to you. And when I take the Lord's Supper and I take that cup and I take that bread, I am making personal again, symbolically, the essence of the gospel. I am eating the gospel. I am tasting that, the gospel. And it refreshes my heart and soul viscerally with the truth of Jesus that I committed my heart and life to when I became a Christian and became a follower of him. It takes me back again and again and reminds me of who he is and what he has done for me. Now, can we make it too important? Yes, we can make it too important if somehow we think it actually saves us like if we say, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, man, I had communion on Sunday. What's that have to do with it? Okay? It doesn't save us. You can you could drink an ocean of grape juice and, and uh, eat the Wonder Bread factory and still go to hell. They're just symbols. What saves us is faith in Jesus. So don't make it too important, okay? I would say in our circles... It's way more common for people to not make it important enough and to somehow become casual in the way that we, oh, it's the Lord's Supper, oh, yes. Some of you have done it hundreds of times. You've taken the Lord's Supper, and now it's sort of like, a, oh, yeah, it's that Sunday again. Here we go. And for you, it's, you're just you're eating a snack. And what Jesus intended for that in terms of nourishing us is lost because you're not remembering. You're not hearkening back to who he was and what he did and that faith commitment that you made to him. And so I would urge most of us that if the Lord's Supper is here, it needs to be up here somewhere. And the next time we have communion here, wouldn't it be great if we just sort of in a fresh way engaged in the Lord's Supper and allowed that wonderful presence of jesus through the symbol and the gospel to just nourish us as a church to be reminded it's all about him not me not you not even the church it's all about christ the third thing i want to talk about is membership membership in a local church if communion if baptism is identifying with jesus and if the Lord's Supper is remembering Jesus, it is in membership in a local church that we love and serve Christ. Now we have to understand, I think, in, in understanding why this is important, what Jesus was doing when he died. Okay, People say, he died for me. And that's true. It is true that Jesus died for me. But he died for a lot more than just me or you. Who did Jesus die for? The testimony of the Bible is that when Jesus came to this earth, he came to die for the same people that he's coming back again for. The church. Here's Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. To be saved, to become a Christian, is to be added to the church. We are saved into the church. Now, many of you know that, and most people affirm that in a sort of general way. Yes, yes, I'm a part of the universal church. And the Bible does talk about the universal church. That is, every person down through history who believes in Jesus. This is the, the Romans 4 and 5, the gathered every tribe, tongue, language, and people worshiping the Lamb at the center of the throne, that ultimate final church? Yes, that is true. But here's the problem. I can't fellowship with the global church. I can't serve the global church. Only God is everywhere. I am not everywhere. What can I do? I can love and serve the universal church by love, loving and serving God in a local church. And this is why the apostles when they when they went out in Acts, they didn't go out and plant universal church. They went out and plant, planted local churches. They planted a little context where the Christians in that community could all gather and love and serve one another, have the Lord's Supper together. They could exercise their spiritual gifts together. They could come under the teaching and the preaching of a shepherd together. They could reach their community together. They do that together. If all of them are just wandering around randomly saying, yeah, I'm a part of a big sort of universal down through time thing. Nothing's accomplished. Nobody knows what's going on. Or to say it this way, There are some people that say this. They say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. What? How can you say, I love Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. But I hate what he came to save. It's illogical. And yet, mostly what people are saying with that is they probably had some experience in a local church at some point in their story that was so painful that they kind of retain a bitterness about that experience in the local church. I hate the church, love Jesus, hate the church. And I sort of get that. And if that's been your experience, I'm sorry that you have had that kind of an experience. But if I could very tenderly ask you this question, who more than anybody has a right to be bitter at the church? And the obvious answer is Christ himself. Yeah, but you don't realize the way that those people have acted and treated and blah, 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 blah. Who knows it better than Jesus? And yet, what do we find? He's coming back for his church. In fact, last night I read in my devotions, the end of Revelation. You know what the church is called at the end of Revelation? The bride. The bride. It's an ugly bride sometimes. It's a very selfish bride sometimes. Sometimes it's a conflicted bride sometimes and yet jesus loves the church and he's coming back for the church and he's not a bitter groom he's a loving groom and let that just sit on your heart a little bit and maybe god will use that to draw you out of that sort of pain of the past and allow you to maybe, in a fresh way, engage in a local church. That would be a great thing. So how do I do this? How do I, how do I love Christ and love a real church? And by a real church, I don't mean a theoretical church. There are people like that as well. They love the theoretical church. They're very idealistic. Oh, the Spirit was in the church. Everybody would get along. Everyone's having devotions every day. You know, the singing is robust. We are, uh, you know, there's... there's uh, Uh, The clouds are not gloomy all day. Home, home on the church. (laughs) That's not in here anywhere. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But don't you run into people like that? They're so idealistic that they can't love a real church. Because in the church, there's all these messy, smelly, annoying people. Do you know who I'm talking about? The real church. The same church that Jesus loves. And yet we look in the Bible, and to me, there is no way, there's no way to fulfill the New Testament commands without some level of commitment to an actual local body of believers. What do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. We're told in Scripture that we're to use our gifts for the good of the body, not selfishly, but for the common good. How do you do that if you don't know a local body that you're actually using your gifts to serve? The Bible tells us that the church is to have a ministry to the widows in the assembly. What assembly and what widows, and how do we know what widow is in what assembly if we don't have some kind of a list of the widows in the church? Spiritual accountability and church discipline. The Bible says that we are to Hold one another accountable, and if somebody is in rebellion and refusing to repent of their sins, that the church is to discipline them lovingly out of the assembly. How do you discipline people out of the church when you don't know who is actually in the church? Difficult to do, don't you think? Church leaders are supposed to know who their sheep are so they can love and disciple and care for them. How do people, how do shepherds do that if they don't actually know who's in their flock? Sheep are to know who their shepherds are so they can be an encouragement to them and they can uh, serve in a way that is joyful. And other things that we could add to this, but the New Testament assumed that Christians would be in a high level of commitment and a local church. Now you might say, there's no word membership in the Bible. There isn't that I'm aware of, but realize there was like one church in town. It's not like today where you got all these churches and people floating around and all the rest. There was one church and you add that There was persecution, so to be a part of the church was risky for you. We would not have to have church membership if this was the only church, and to come here might cost you your job or your life. It'd be easy to know who's in and who's not, wouldn't it? And yet, that's not the context that we're in. I am a huge fan of church membership, and I'm urging each of us to be a member of a local church. And I would add to that, there are no verses I'm aware of of, that support casual attendance on weekends at some local church. That is not the vision of the New Testament regarding Christian community. And if you know some of those verses, please see me after the service. I'll try to incorporate it into my next message, third service. That was sarcasm. Uh, So here's what I'm saying. I want to urge you to become a member of a local church. Now, preferably, that would be Bethel Church. But if you can't do that here for some reason, I would encourage you to go somewhere that you can join and serve joyfully because I think that's God's plan for us. Okay, so baptism, Lord's Supper, membership in a local church. And these all relate to one another, okay? They all flow from a faith commitment to Christ. If Christ is my Savior, then I want to identify myself with him. If Christ is my Savior, then I am glad to remind my soul uh, over and over and over again how wonderful he is and my faith commitment to him. And if Christ is my Savior, then I am going to love the church, the messy, annoying, sometimes wonderful, sometimes challenging experience of being in a local church. I'm going to love it anyway. Why? Because the one that I love loves it and gave himself up for the church. Again, we're not saved by any of these things, so let's not make them more important than they are, but let's see them as precious gifts from our Savior to us and to experience them for all that he intended them to be. Amen.